Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, the history of the human body is often a pretty one-sided affair, at least the telling of it, focusing on the bodies of men, really. Kat Bohannon was doing a PhD at Columbia in New York back in 2013, thinking about these issues, when a movie scene from a movie called Prometheus spurred her into action and onto the project that would become her new book called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution, and she joins me to tell me all about it. She has been an Indigenous icon for 60 years, musician, activist, Oscar winner, Order of Canada recipient, but a new report from the CBC calls Buffy St. Marie's claims of Indigenous heritage into question, claims she denies. We find out what's been discovered and ask if and why it matters. She's the youngest Team Canada athlete at the Pan American Games, and she's bringing home gold. Skateboarder Faye Fazio ebert described the thrill of a first-place finish, how a feather from her pet duck Richard provided a lucky charm. But first, the premiers of Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta are all calling for further exemptions on the federal carbon tax for natural gas after the Prime Minister provided a three-year carve-out for home heating oil on Thursday, a move that principally benefits Atlantic Canada, where there's a much higher percentage of homes that heat with oil. So in granting an exemption to one part of the country, is this Liberal government sacrificing one of its signature policies to try to halt a freefall in the polls? Well, first up tonight, uh, Justin Trudeau is being accused of handing out some early Halloween goodies to the Atlantic provinces with a three-year carbon tax exemption, carbon tax exemption rather, on home heating oil. And now other provinces, including Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, where natural gas, not heating oil, dominates, are lined up at the the door asking for their own. Uh, While the exemption, again, applies nationwide, Trudeau even admits the policy will really help Atlantic Canada, in particular 30% of homeowners in that region, still use furnace oil to heat their homes. Here's the PM explaining the move yesterday. We've heard clearly from Atlantic Canadians through our amazing Atlantic MPs that since the federal pollution price came into force this summer, replacing provincial systems, certain features of that pollution price needed to be adjusted to work for everyone. Yeah, pollution price. The amazing Liberal MPs, I think, from the Atlantic provinces were battering down the door of the PMO to get him to change this. It's certainly been welcome news in places such as Nova Scotia. Scotia, The Premier there, Tim Houston, says leaving the carbon pricing on gasoline is still a big problem, but this is a start. So any move to kind of minimize the impact is, is a welcome move. So I hope it's actually the first step, but at least it's a step, and I'm thankful for that. Well, needless to say, when one area gets some goodies, uh, other areas look for the same. So here's a list of who was talking today in the reaction to yesterday's action. Doug Ford of Ontario says, I'm urging the PM to do what's right and eliminate the tax altogether. Uh, then we had Danielle Smith say, or actually Rachel Notley said, to apply a carbon price to only some regions and some fuels is totally unacceptable. So you have the opposition in Alberta saying that as well. Scott Moe got in on the act, Premier uh, Danielle Smith as well. Uh, she said it was also unacceptable. So what you're seeing is all these provinces where natural gas is the main way of home heating, and certainly people are feeling the pinch there as well, saying we want in on this as well. And the big problem for the Prime Minister here, for the Liberals, is that they've kind of opened the door to a bunch of exemptions on something that they vowed they wouldn't exempt people from. Now, perhaps this was a reaction to something that had come into place this summer in Atlantic Canada, as he had explained. But other provinces, other areas are going to be looking at this this and saying, well, if you can do it for them, 
You better do it for us. Catherine Harrison is a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, and she joins me now. Catherine, thank you. My pleasure. So I, I guess we can just look at the rationale behind yesterday's move. I don't think it came as a huge surprise because there was a hue and cry in Atlantic Canada over this, and they were the Liberals were plummeting. They were, you know, they were in free fall in the polls, um, and they were getting a lot of pushback. But do you think this was just politics, or was there some decent policy in this as well? Um, I think it's mostly politics. I think there's a real problem, and I wish they had address the real problem with other policies. So since January 2021, um, looking at you know, prices of, of furnace oil in Atlantic Canada, in um, most provinces, it's almost doubled since January 2021. That's already a pretty costly fuel source for home heating. So you know, a lot of families are really hurting. They weren't most of that, three quarters, 80% of that price increase has nothing to do with the carbon tax, but because the provincial governments had waived home heating from the carbon tax, when the federal government stepped in to ensure consistency across Canada, the carbon tax hit that all at once. They, you know, didn't start in 29 and gradually increased. They got, you know, a big bang in July. And I think that is sort of, you know, it's added to an already difficult situation. And so, you know, people are really hurting with the affordability of, of home heating. I think there are other ways that that could have been addressed without an, um, undermining a very well-designed climate policy. Right. So for, I mean, for listeners to understand, I mean, home heating oil, if you look at the charts, it's pretty much only used in Atlantic Canada, a little bit in Quebec, a little bit in Ontario and BC. Of course, BC and Ontario aren't part of this. They have their own uh, carbon pollution carbon pollution schemes in place. So it doesn't impact them. Um, today, of course... It does impact surpri- Ontario, actually. It does um, impact Ontario. They, rather, they it does eliminated impact BC. their own carbon pricing. Right. It, it, impacts, it impact, doesn't impact BC or Quebec. It does impact Ontario. Right. So yeah. needless to say, today we saw the premiers of Ontario, uh, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, as well as the opposition leader in Alberta, all come out and say, if you're going to do it for them, do it for us. That, I mean, they must have known this was coming. Well, and I mean, the Liberals, the Liberal government must have known that that would be the, the, uh, the reaction because it's, it's pretty predictable. I mean, they are waiving the carbon tax for one fuel everywhere in Canada. It just happens to mostly be used in one province. Um, the fact is the, the impact of the carbon price um, on home heating and indeed the, you know, the impact of inflation, which is the main problem on home heating for those who rely on gas has not been nearly so bad. So there's, there's a greater fuel poverty problem, you know, a real problem in Atlantic Canada for people who are relying on fuel oil. Um, I do think it's a problem to waive the carbon price on the most carbon intensive home heating source. Uh, Fuel oil is a really bad way environmentally to heat one's home. So um, I think they set themselves up for this kind of pushback. And I, I do hope they hold the line because this is one of those moments where there could be an unraveling of a policy that we're counting on a lot to deliver um, a big chunk of the reductions that we've committed to by 2030. Right. Of course, Catherine, I'm I'm sure you know that anyone who's opposed, anyone who's sort of been 
championing the whole axe the tax idea, sees this admission, may not know all the details of why exactly home heating oil in Atlantic Canada became so prohibitively expensive for a lot of people and how few options they have uh, when it comes to heating, and simply looks at this and goes, well, this is the Liberal government admitting that the carbon tax is punitive, admitting that it's adding to, to, the, to the affordability crisis, and therefore, uh, you know, they'll tune out everything else and say, okay, well, you know, you've opened the floodgates, time, time to start cutting elsewhere. I think that's, that must be, um, that would be the expectation, I think, in a lot of places. Politically, this looks like a real jam for the Liberals. I mean, the, the, carbon, the carbon tax has been a real jam for the Liberals since day one, because... Um, I don't believe that those, you know, Mr. Poilievre, for instance, who are going around holding acts of carbon tax rallies, don't know this, the kind of things I was sharing. They know that the price of oil and other fossil fuels has been going up globally. In fact, that's been great news for Canada's oil and gas producers. Um, they know that we are a price taker globally. They know, I mean, you know, they are running a populist campaign to tell people what they want to hear. And that's not new. That has been happening since the NDP did it in BC in 2008, since the Conservatives did it in Alberta in 2015, and since the Conservatives have been doing it federally. What's new is that yesterday uh, the Prime Minister gave them a new line that they can work with. They can say he flip-flopped. But the general messaging for Acts the Tax is for the most part not based on facts. Mr. Poilievre um, never talks about the rebates. He tends to emphasize the impact of the carbon tax on inflation, which just doesn't make sense nationally. He's got, he's got a, a line that's working well, and he's going to go across the country and say it. Um, you know, there's a minor change since yesterday. Yeah, I mean, I think what it's boiled down to, and this has been pointed out again and again, is that even those who sort of support the idea of reducing carbon emissions don't want to pay for it, especially not now. And I think that's where we've run into this, where sort of the rubber hits the road on the carbon tax, is that it's become a very hard sell for the Liberals. First of all, it's not well understood. Uh, second of all, it hasn't been communicated particularly well. And third of all, it's then collided with this sudden surge in the cost of fuels in many places. And so it's all sort of piling into one bad mess for a government trying Trying to sell a uh, policy that would already have been a tough sell, I think. I mean, the timing is really tough right now with the the cost of living going up, the price of um, transportation fuels and home home heating fuels going up. Um, I think that carbon taxes are always a tough sell. First of all, because we all like the idea of climate action, but it's human nature to compare how. How will I be impacted by this policy tomorrow compared to what I'm doing today? And so we think it makes us worse off. In fact, today isn't on the table. Climate change is going to increase our costs, economic costs, costs for individuals. And so the real comparison is modest investments today to avoid much worse costs in the future. But that's not, that's not human nature. And I think the fact that there's so much misunderstanding has to do with the, the nature of the opposition campaign. So my, my um, co-authors and I have done public opinion polling, and what we find is that Canadians almost all underestimate what the rebates are that they're getting back because opponents never talk about them. But those who underestimate them the most voted conservative last time. When we asked people to estimate how much they're paying 
in carbon taxes based on their gasoline budgets, their home heating budget. Those who trust the Conservative Party massively overestimate how much they're um, paying compared to those who have voted Liberal in the previous election. So there's sort of natural things, human nature comparing to the status quo, but that is really being exacerbated by a campaign of misinformation that um, just got a little worse but is not new. What caused Justin Trudeau to freak out yesterday and hold a sudden press conference to announce that he was going to pause the carbon tax on home heating oil? The answer is that he was plummeting in the polls and Pierre Polyev was holding massive rallies in liberal-held ridings to axe the tax. I'm not so sure, but we're referring to oneself in the third person there. <laughs> Catherine Harrison is with us, professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. But, uh, Catherine, we've been talking about uh, this decision yesterday to carve out uh, home heating oil from the carbon tax uh, for the next three years. Of course, that, that disproportionately benefits Atlantic Canada, where home heating oil is much more prevalent than in other parts of the country. Um, one thing about this that that struck me is this is a very this is sort of a signature liberal policy, and clearly they're getting a little spooked by by the uh, by the polling, and understood they had to do something in Atlantic Canada. We're probably getting a lot of pressure from their own MPs, but it feels like once you open the floodgates on this one, that um, I'm wondering if they don't lose people who've been sort of committed to them because of their stance on environmental issues. That this doesn't sort of show a bit too much um, political flexibility, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's to grossly oversimplified three groups of voters. They're the ones for whom the, the credibility of a party's climate policy matters a lot. And there, unless the liberals actually open the floodgates, my guess is that they will still have a very strong and uh, credible climate policy, certainly compared to the conservatives going to the next federal election. So... That's not so much of a worry. Um, it's the kind of folks in the middle where they're just looking for someone to give them something to work with. Um, honestly, for those folks, the question is how much the cost of living will matter versus climate change. So the impacts of this are not you know, totally obvious, especially if we look ahead 18 months. Um, and it, a lot does depend on whether they, you know, just <laughs> go rolling down that slippery slope and make further concessions. But I wouldn't expect that because this is a government that has invested a lot in fighting for this signature policy. They, they took on the provinces. They went all the way to the Supreme Court. They defended right. it in two federal elections. They, they did. And, and I guess that's why the opening of this, I mean, I think the, the vulnerability they have on this now is that by carving out that little bit, they've essentially, it's, it, for all those who've criticized it, it's, it's just another, it just opens the door a little f further for this. Now, obviously, I mean, I understand how carbon policies work, carbon taxes work. And if they're done well, and if they're done equitably, and people believe in them, they tend to work. But the moment there starts to be you know, sort of chinks in that armor, it can start to start to fall apart pretty quickly. Pe people need to think that the system is fair. Well, I mean, I think, what do we mean by it works? It can, it can work whether people like it or not. True um, enough. You know, it works through the price system. When the price of one thing goes up, you might buy a little less of it and buy something else. That's just, you know, how we operate as consumers in markets. 
The big issue with carbon taxes is whether there's sufficient political support that a government that adopts one can stay in office. So far, the Liberals have pulled that off. Um, Clearly, they're pretty worried about um, cost of living issues and how that is intersected with application of the carbon tax in Atlantic Canada, where, you know, they got the whole $65 per ton in one month, Um, whereas, you know, the rest of us in D.C., we've been building up to that since 2008. Well, Catherine, I appreciate your time. Have a great weekend. You too. Trick-or-treat, man. Hey, aren't you a little old for this? You're not even wearing costumes. Hand over the candy, old dude, or we add your house back to the Stone Age. Here you go, kids. <laughs> Lousy punks. Oh! <laughs> oh, yeah. The Simpsons. There's always a Simpsons skit for something you want to talk about. So tonight we're talking about when is it too old to trick-or-treat, right? Uh, now, of course, in... In deference to all kids of any age at this point in time, because of the pandemic and so on, there was a few Halloweens that were missed. Uh, so maybe a little bit more leeway uh, this time around. But again, uh, you know, there can be a large range of trick-or-treaters on Halloween, right? You get everything from parents with their toddlers and to like sometimes you get someone who shows up who looks like they're probably shaved this morning and probably drove to come to your place to get some candy and maybe didn't wear a mask and so on. That could be a little more annoying. But a new poll out today ahead of the big day on Tuesday spells out what Canadians might think about when it's too old or what the right age to trick-or-treat is. The majority, and this may be of comfort to some of the texters we've already had tonight, 23% say you're never too old. You're never too old to do it. You're as young as you feel, right? But if you work out the averages, it's about 14. About half of respondents think you should hang up that pillowcase or plastic pumpkin sometime between the ages of 12 and 15. And for example, in Bathurst, New Brunswick, they actually brought in a bylaw to make it illegal for people over the age of 14 to trick-or-treat, but then changed it back in 2017 to uh, make it 16 years old. As anything, anybody above 16 can't trick-or-treat. So we wanted to get some opinions on this, and Vanessa LaPointe is well-situated to provide them. She's a parenting educator and author, and she joins me now. Vanessa, thank you so much. My pleasure. You know, this subject often comes up at this time of year about how old is too old to trick-or-treat. I always thought if you could drive yourself to the trick-or-treating, you're probably, it's probably time to hang up the pillowcase or the plastic pumpkin or whatever you use to collect candy. But you, you look at it differently, right? I mean, this is not about, we shouldn't put an age restriction on it. Well, I think about what it means to be a kid these days. And being a kid these days is a tough go. We have a lot of kind of things to say about how kids should go and how they should behave and all the kind of things. And I really believe that kids, like they're not going to be 39 and trick-or-treating. So we all can just settle down and give kids an opportunity to have as much of a childhood as they can. And I guess these days that's ever more important because they were, they were kind of, there was a few years there where they really didn't get to have a, a typical childhood. They, they lost out because many of us, you know, were in shutdown mode. And so we didn't get access to those kind of regular routines and traditions. And in addition to that, they've had childhood kind of ripped away from them in many other ways as well. With the intrusion of social media and that kind of stuff, kids are not getting to be kids these days. And I think, you know, we are far better off having our teens um, running around the neighborhood and trick-or-treating and having a great old time than doing the other 
things they could be doing on Halloween. Indeed. Yeah, I remember those I remember those days too when you hit a little bit older. There was a survey out today. I mean, this was just an online one, so it's not exact science, but it seemed most Canadians sort of thought that 14 was about the right age to hang it up, maybe between, you know, to 12 on the early side. I think that's really young, but between like 12 and 16. I, I guess everyone's always had sort of an opinion about this. It's a weird one because, as you mentioned, childhood has changed so much over the last 50 years, but our impressions of who should be and who shouldn't be trick-or-treating seems to have been a bit static. Yeah. And, you know, we come into this, as with so many other issues, preloaded with biases about who children are and who they ought to be. And when you kind of crack the vault open and all of that and look deep into where those things come from, there's actually a lot of childism <laughs> that right. floats through the the narratives of our society. And when we really sort of drill into the bottom of like, why, why don't you want teens on your doorstep trick-or-treating? A lot of it comes with these sort of ideas that they need to learn responsibility and they have to be able to cope with a no and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And my experience of teens um, I have a couple of them myself and right. I've, you know, been working alongside them for more than 20 years now is that the more generous and caring and kind and yes, firm and yes, have your expectations in place and be reasonable, but the more generous and caring and kind you are, the more they grow to be generous, caring and kind adults. And isn't that what we all want? So let's extend to them during this particular season alongside every other time um that kindness and caring and then see what kind of miracles come out of that and i guess teens too they'll decide when they want to stop trick-or-treating right i imagine there's more than a few who say at 13 14 you know i'm done like i'm done with yeah. that and that's and that's their decision right and they will come into that. You see, there's this interesting force that is development and maturation. And I like double dog dare you to try and get in the way of it. It's going to play out and happen. My son is 16 years old, going on 17, my youngest boy. And like he... He just wouldn't even think about that anymore. He's way too interested in the Halloween party that's happening, you know, or or what kind of crazy candy bags his crazy mom is putting together for the neighborhood kids this year. Like he's kind of on that side of it. And if there was a 16 year old kid who was still wanting that and still seeking it, then I say, what's the harm? Yeah. And how about this year? I mean, again, it feels like for the last few years and, you know, it's, I guess every, there's always bad news around, but it, it feels like Halloween. And I remember this when I was young too, it's really is something to celebrate and you kind of need those celebrations. So in some senses, it feels maybe a little cruel uh, to, to cut some off, to sort of arbitrarily cut some group of kids off from, from being able to experience it. Yeah. And, and to be sort of, uh, you know, in a world that feels kind of dark at the moment, there's a lot of things going on. Be a light maker, like be the one that shows up and, um, and makes it a little shinier for kids, especially for all human beings, but especially for kids right now, they are craving it and they are seeking it and yearning for it. Um, maybe as never before. And so I think that if we could be that kind of presence, um, on this one night, <laughs> and maybe all the other ones too, uh, what a difference that would make.
What I always liked about trick-or-treating, regardless of who shows up at the door, is that it's one of those things, it's a continuum, right? There there aren't that many things that are similar when we were young, uh, when I was young, I won't, I won't lump you in with this, when I was young, to what happens today. And to me, trick-or-treating, I mean, I live in a, in a condo building, so it's a little bit different. But, you know, seeing kids out trick-or-treating looks in 2023, to me, like, it, you know, it's a lot more elaborate today, but it kind of looks like 1977 as well. And, and that's, there's something nice about that continuity. Yeah. And the idea of rituals and the way that we do things, traditions, it keeps us all feeling like we belong. It, it actually creates a sense of safety through that kind of shared experience. And, you know, I remember being a kid growing up on the Alberta prairies and my mom, like, packing me into the snowsuit and then putting my really lame clown costume over top of the snowsuit because it was the only thing that would right. fit over the snowsuit. And off we would go and we did it, you know, whether there was a blizzard or whether it happened to be a more um, reasonable kind of uh, fall weather event happening around Halloween. That's how we showed up. And so if you can see how kids, they lean into those historical structures and traditions that we have had. And the more we're scrubbing them out, the more our kids are just left to kind of wander around and they won't leave that sitting as empty um, open space. They, it doesn't feel comfortable for them to exist in a vacuum. So they'll recreate something and you might not like that as much as you would like having a 15 year old on your doorstep getting yeah. some yeah. The only thing I have to say, though, the one thing, the only part about older when I hand out candy, the only thing that I didn't like is when a teenager would show up and put no effort into it. Like, literally, they're just yeah. out on a candy grab. That was the only thing I'd say, listen, if you're going to go out and trick or treat, I don't mind how old you are, but at least put a little effort into it and show up and look like everybody. Look like you're actually there to enjoy the the spectacle of it and the ritual of it. You're not just showing up for the free candy. <laughs> Yeah. And so now you got to sing me a song or you got to do a magic trick or, you know, some kind of something interesting to put a little fun into the whole thing for you. And as an, an adult, you can have some fun in return with that, can't you? <laughs> you can indeed. Uh, Vanessa, thank you so much. My pleasure. You may not have noticed this, but Canada is cleaning up at the Pan-American Games and Pan-Parapan Games in Santiago, Chile. It's, uh, they're sitting in third place in the medal standings behind the U.S. and Mexico with 87 medals, including 32 gold. Now 23, you may have seen this, 23 of them have been in the pool. Maggie McNeil, of course, who's just an absolute legend already, has won five golds to set a new Canadian single Pan Am Games record. Uh, she's 23. The youngest member of Team Canada is 10 years her junior. But skateboarder Faye Adafazio Ebert has added to that gold medal haul, believe it or not. Her win came in the Women's Park competition last Sunday. Again, 13, and she's got a gold medal. It marks a really incredible step for the Toronto teen who narrowly missed out on representing Canada at the Tokyo Games two summers ago, in part because she'd been too young to compete in some of the earlier qualification rounds. Don't forget those Olympics were delayed for a year. But now, of course, she's looking ahead to Paris. Uh, that's coming up next year, the Summer Olympics in Paris. And uh, Faye DeFazio Ebert is back home, and she joins me now. Faye, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to see your set. I mean, I, I watched a lot of, of, of park skateboarding at the uh, Olympics in Tokyo, and I hadn't really seen it before. Uh, it looks like it's a lot to do with just how you start and the momentum that you get. And wow, you, I mean, that, that run, that second run uh, looked fantastic for you. It looked like you were just floating, floating through it. Thanks. Thanks. What was it like? Um, what was it? Uh, it was... It was amazing, like being there with all the 
Canadian like athletes. Like even when we got there, that we I went to the opening ceremony, and I saw the Canadian athletes, and it was it was so crazy, and um, it was cool skating with uh, the other countries who I the people I usually skate with, and yeah. It was good. Tell me about that feather in your helmet because that's a really cool story. Um, the feather in my helmet is from one of my ducks, uh, Richard, and um, yeah, uh, you know how like birds molt and stuff. Yep. So, kind of just uh, I pick them up all like around the backyard. And I find like good ones, and then I put them in my helmet for luck, and I bring them to, um, I don't know the countries. Yeah, I noticed I even, even before you started started on that run, you, you actually touched the the, the the feather to make sure it's still there and still sitting in the right yeah, place because yeah, yeah. you kind of stick it in your helmet. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, I stick it in my helmet. It's <laughs> yeah. Uh good old yeah. It's good to bring some luck with you. Tell me a bit about that about that. I mean, for listeners who don't know what what park skate the park competition is, uh, what do you have to do in in how much time through that event? So basically, you get in this one, because it, it was like a finals, basically, only eight people. You get three runs and 45 seconds. So 45 seconds and then three runs. And then it's based on um, your style, your usage of the park, your variation and trick, like your tricks, your flips, spins. Yeah, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I was watching you. This was the second run that got you the gold. I gather. I mean, yeah. that was the, that was. So when when you start a run like that, are you trying to sort of do a bunch of really difficult stuff off the top, or you're looking to get enough momentum that you can make it all the way through the forty five seconds? It's just kind of doing all your tricks, like how things link together, because you wouldn't do like a couple of tricks and they like wouldn't look good together, but like or like set you up weird. It's just like um how you use the course and usually the judges like to see like um you doing your like harder tricks sometimes towards the end because you end like big kind of like doing all your tricks and then like slowly like you have like nothing you know I'm sure. I mean, I've watched it on TV, and I've always, of course, if you're a fa- if you're watching it and you're not, you're always worried that they're that the the athlete's going to kind of fall near the end. So you're kind of always holding your breath for the for the for, for you, for instance, competing. Um, do you, do you have a sense in the run that it's going really well? That this is going to be a really good one. Um, this time around, I was really trying to be confident and really trying to be like, oh, I've already done this. These are like my tricks, but not make it be like. It's too like it's too easy because then sometimes you like fall and it's like oh I got this but I was like okay one trick at a time I'm doing my first trick I'm spinning okay I landed it I'm breathing and then I'm going into the next trick you know yeah 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 it's, it must be I mean I can't imagine I I already told you that I was I was not a good skateboarder one of those things I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't do so I've always watched those things with with a lot of awe you started skateboarding uh, a while back right like you've been skateboarding for several years now. I've been skateboarding for I think five years now. Since you were eight, <laughs> just so yeah. listeners remember how many years that is. Yeah. Uh, did you like it right away? Was it something that you took to like right away? You you thought, oh, this is great. Um. Yeah, I I, I loved it. Um. Yeah, I just. Um, what was it? 
Yeah, no worries. It's, I mean, what what did you like about it when you started? When you started? Oh, I don't really remember what I liked about it when I started <laughs> because I was so young. Right. But um, I remember being like speed and like getting all my energy out with like how fast I'm going, just learning stuff and meeting people. Like still kind of the same stuff now. Because you do like a lot. My- yeah. Yeah. Because you train a lot, right? I mean, just so everyone yeah. understands, you how much training? How much training do you do? Uh, I skate every day, but it depends on like if I'm having like a really really hard session. So like sometimes I just go to the park for two hours and practice like like I'm in competition and like hard um, tricks and just really work on stuff. And then sometimes, you know, I'll chill out at the park, hang out with my friends. That's like a, it's like different. It's not as much training. It's just like skating. Yeah. You have a, and, and skate parks are full of people of like all ages. Right. So that's kind of cool, kind yeah. of cool for you too. Like you're not, it's not just, it's not like, I don't know, something like, uh, I don't want to criticize gymnastics, but it's not like gymnastics where it's all the same. And you got lots of different people at a skate park. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, um, are you what's it like to compete though did was there a period where you sort of decided that you were going to try and compete at at this kind of level because that's i mean as you mentioned team canada gold medal this is all big stuff yeah um i always liked competing in like local contests and i liked the pressure when i was like younger because i did do a bit of track and cross country and i liked feeling that as much as like i didn't like it i did like it at the same time it's different with skateboarding competitions because i love the feeling of contests but um, when I, like, started skateboarding, Canada Skateboard needed, like, a girl um, to, like, represent Canada. And they wanted to, like, give me a chance because they saw I was, like, progressing quickly. And when I was, like, nine, I got invited to Brazil. And I don't think I was very ready, but I guess it gave me the, like, experience, like, this is what's out there and I'm going to keep, like, skating. Wow. I, I don't, I, I, nine, yeah, I don't, I don't, I think I was still, I wasn't think I was ready at all for a competition like that. You almost made the last Olympic team too, and you were still, I mean, that was two years ago already. Yeah, um, it was really difficult because when um, I didn't go to that many events because I was still young and the Olympic events were going before I even started skateboarding. Right. So, um, um, I didn't go to very many of them. There was like three before I even started skateboarding. And um, yeah, I think it's just better this year now. Yeah. I I've gone to all the events yeah. and I'm better. And yeah. Well, uh, Faye, congratulations again. Sounds like thank it's you, uh, an you. awesome experience. Look forward to seeing uh, what next. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Heavy? Heavy. <laughs> looks, uh, looks heavy. Yeah. I'm just coming down from visiting my folks in Cree Reservation in Canada. Oh, oh yeah? Lord knows. Oh, a reservation? Are you Indian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, really? I'm just here visiting some people from another tribe who I thought was still going to school here, but they've left. So on I go. You know, like so many kids who grew up in the 70s, uh, I was an avid Sesame Street watcher. I mean, I spent many, many a day sitting in front of Sesame Street. It really opened my eyes to a world that, you know, I grew up in Montreal, but it was pretty monocultural. I had, that show opened my eyes to so many things at a young age. And Buffy St. Marie 
was one of them. I mean, I think a lot of us watched in awe uh, when she was on Sesame Street, even a little uh, white boy from Montreal like myself. Her rise through the folk scene, of course, my parents would explain who she actually was. Her rise through the, through the folk scene in Greenwich Village in the 60s to stardom, those early awards for Best New Artist, her activism, the way she broke barriers and championed Indigenous causes. It's made her a Canadian icon. She's an Order of Canada recipient. She's an Academy Award winner, an Oscar winner. Uh, you know, her talent, her passion, her dedication, all of that over the years, unmistakable. You can't miss it. But new reporting today from the CBC that came out today delves into that life story, and it's calling into question her longstanding claims to Indigenous ancestry. According to the CBC's Fifth Estate investigation released today, St. Marie is likely instead, uh, according to their investigation, Italian, uh, or at least born to parents in Massachusetts uh, in the early 40s, and not taken from her biological parents uh, in Saskatchewan, an adopted Cree from the Piapot First Nation. Uh, again, according to that birth certificate that they've dug up, amongst many other things, and it is a very difficult subject because, of course, she is an icon, uh, not just here, but right around the world, specifically in North America, but in many, many places. And any time these sorts of stories are brought out, there are a lot of questions and there are a lot of there's a lot of backlash. We've seen that uh, today. Uh, before publication of the story, uh, St. Marie took to social media in a video statement to offer. Uh, this is part of her response from yesterday. For 60 years, I've been sharing my story as I know it. I'm an artist an activist, a mom, a survivor, and a proud member of the Native community with deep roots in Canada. And I count myself lucky to have had two families to love, a growing up family who were wonderful, and my Pipot family who were also wonderful. But there are also many things I don't know, which I've always been honest about. I don't know where I'm from, who my birth parents are, or how I ended up a, a misfit in a typical white Christian New England town. But I realized decades ago that I would never have the answer to these questions. Now, of course, St. Marie is not the first to be challenged on this. Uh, on this, uh, Author Joseph Boyden, legal scholar Mary Ellen turpel Lafon. there are others who have been accused of adopting Indigenous identities. And despite all the good they may have done over many, many years, it also becomes a question, of course, of deception. How much does it matter? Does the fame, did their fame take away that opportunity from someone else in the Indigenous community to become that symbol, to enjoy that success that they instead enjoy? These are really tough questions. I don't know the answers. They're emotional ones as well. Kim Talbert is a professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. She's the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Society, and she joins me now. Kim, thanks so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Tell me a bit about, I mean, we're, we're roughly the same age. I, I, I don't know whether you watched Sesame Street as a kid, but, uh, you know, she, Buffy St. Marie sort of tailored, for me, she just sort of was this magical person that was on that show. Yeah, I mean, I did watch Sesame Street, and I remember always knowing who she was, although I'm not sure it was from there. I mean, I grew up in the middle of the, you know, American Indian movement time in South Dakota in the 1970s. And, you know, she was uh, an image that we all knew about, right? I, I knew about her from a, a very young age. So, yeah. What um what was it? What was your? I, I know when when the CBC came to you for this story, what was your initial reaction to it, and what did you think? I, I imagine you've seen it by now. What was your reaction to seeing right. what it is they had done? Yeah, I, I just watched the full documentary tonight. Um, they interviewed me about six seven months ago, 
mm-hmm. and showed me the birth certificate and some other documentation. And I knew the broad outlines of the story and I recognized them. There are patterns in these self-indigenization cases, shifting narratives about what, about which native nation you're claiming. She had three or four that she shifted between until she settled on Cree. Uh, I was adopted. The records all burned up. These are common stories. Um, and so I was, you know, fairly calm and intellectual about it because this is something I study. When I heard the details, when we taped the current yesterday from Jeff Leo and then more details when I watched the documentary tonight, I was surprisingly emotional and shake, surprisingly emotional and I was shaken. And I was, I was just surprised at myself. And, uh, and I think it was the sort of a visceral reaction to the very particular details of this case that are a little bit different than the other cases and that were more shocking to me. Um, I, you're not alone, right? You're not alone. I've seen yeah. just the reaction today has been very, I mean, I, it's tough for me, obviously tough for me to, I can't put myself in your shoes or anyone else who, who, who this impacts directly. Uh, but, you know, how would you describe what, what, what was different about it? Well, I think what's different is, you know, a lot of these cases, they're not claiming to be scooped and stolen. And when you know the real stories of the scooped and stolen, they are tragic, you know, people have been forcibly removed from their communities and, and, and relocated to white families and communities usually. People suffer a lot of trauma in that disconnection, uh, a sense of a loss of identity. That is true. And to steal that story of some of the most vulnerable, I find it just comes across as really cruel and really opportunistic. The other thing is... Um, the way in which she threatened her family of origin, the Santa Maria's, to keep them quiet. I, it was it was shocking to see hear the details of that. Um, and, you know, and you can talk about the allegations of sexual abuse, and you know, we don't really know. But to weaponize that to keep an entire family silent, that's really different than the other cases we've seen. What have you made of the reaction today? Because it's been kind of, I, I've seen a lot of people talk about it, having that visceral reaction, especially especially Indigenous yeah. people I follow online or people I've interviewed. They're having a really tough time with this. In fact, a lot of people didn't really want to talk about this today because it was so, it was so flooring in so many ways. Yeah. What have you made I of the reaction? Yeah, I don't blame them. You know, I had to put myself on mute when I was in studio yesterday because I was shaking and I didn't want to cry on air. And I'm not a person who cries about this topic usually. So, um People need time to process. Yesterday was a very hard day for me, and I'm not even that, I'm not close, I don't know her, I was not a super fan, I'm not Indigenous from Canada, I'm from the U.S., so I think for Indigenous people up here, this is really hard, and they're going to need time to process and figure out what they think, and I, you know, I totally respect that, but I, I, I don't know if I'm answering your whole question. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, absolutely. I, I mean, I guess this is just a lot. You know, the people have called this, I've seen people call this unnecessary and a bit of a bit of a hit job, really. Uh, what, what, I mean, I, I don't know what to say to that, because to me, it's, it's right. pretty straight up journalism. And, you know, maybe the idea of doing it in the first place would seem you could maybe, I don't know, I suppose you could question whether they couldn't have focused that energy on something else. But it seemed you, like you an important story to tell. You can always say that, right? Yeah. Right. You can always yeah. say that. We can always tell another story and do another investigation. This is a widespread problem in both Canadian and U.S. society, and that's why I do the story. We've got this problem of people posing as Indigenous in academia, in arts, in literature. I think stories are coming in government and film, and it does 
display it, it first of all it falsely represents the voices of actual native people um and in this particular case i think because she was such an icon and she had that story of being scooped that she was telling uh it forces kind of or it elicits the identification of people who have truly been traumatized by being scooped with her and then to find out that it's a lie it's another it's another trauma um and so so that, that that's i think that's a hard part about this, but I think systemically this really matters and that we've got to get a handle on this problem and we need to go beyond self-identification alone. And we are, we have to think about what kinds of policies and practices we can have in media and academia and arts to get beyond self-identification. And I think we are beginning to solve that problem. Uh, Investigating these cases uh, by the mainstream media has been a big part of shedding light on how deep the problem is and that something needs to be done about it. I, I was struck, too, by because I had spoken uh, to Jean Tellier uh, last year when the Mary, Trippel, uh, Mary Ellen Trippel Lafon uh, case was, right. was going on. And, and the similarities in some extent about sort of, uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, that Buffy St. Marie's um, adoptive family, quote unquote, in, 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 in Saskatchewan, have sort of come out and said, listen, we respect our relationship. Uh, and I think Mary Ellen Trippel Lafon said something similar. Uh, and there is mm-hmm. some, there's a nuance there that mightn't be easy for others to understand. But there is a nuance there. Right. And I, it is it is absolutely uh, Buffy St. Marie's adopted family in Saskatchewan. It is their right to reckon with that kinship. Nobody can tell them what to do. They have to sit with this information. And I do know about ceremonial adoptions in Indigenous communities. People take that very seriously, very seriously. And so I, I sympathize with that family. But this doesn't only affect that family, right? And nobody's telling them how to reckon that kinship relationship. This does affect broader society and it affects our institutions. And Indigenous people more broadly have a big stake in this. And, and so does non-Indigenous society to, to, to some degree as well. Uh, Kim, where do you think this goes from here? And how should, I mean, I, I just reading all the reaction to this, it feels very sensitive and it feels like areas that maybe we should just, I'm trying to figure out how to react to this. I think I think a lot of us people are trying to figure out how to react to it tonight. But you think there's a, a grain of truth here that cannot be ignored? I think the evidence is solid. Uh, I, and what I've been seeing in uh, conversations um, both online and in person with Indigenous people the last two days is they have been, many people, most people I think have been swayed by the birth certificate evidence and the testimony of the family, the inconsistencies in the stories. So um, I, th- I think over time, people are going to come to a place of acceptance, most people. Um, and then I do think for non-Indigenous people, I, I, I imagine it is hard to figure out how to respond, you know, uh, the, the desire to be sensitive about it, to understand that your stakes are not the same. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 would in, I would encourage a lot of carefulness around that. Again, I, I think Indigenous people are really feeling this in Canada, and um, it's going to take a while to process. Does it does it take away? I mean, ultimately, I, I think this is the thing when you're outside of it and you're looking in, you think, well, all the good things that were done. And then obviously right. you read the arguments and think, well, if it wasn't her, maybe it would have been somebody else. Maybe it's someone who we never got to hear about. I, I think about that, you know, um, not to take away from her talent, but she did produce an image that no doubt contributed to the career that she had. She did not have a career as Italian-American Beverly Santa Maria from Stone and Mass. She had a very different career based on the story she told. And the thing about 
what it's like for Indigenous people back then, but even to some degree now, there's often only room for one. So if I think about, you know, a lot of university departments might say we'll hire one Indigenous person. Uh, there's a, you know, there's not often room for more than that because Indigenous peoples tend to be tokenized. And so slotting her into that position back in the 60s and 70s, you know, it is very possible that somebody else didn't get an opportunity. Uh, we see this a lot, actually. Well, we already have the Indian, you know, in, the, in this position. We don't really need to go look for anybody else. We already have the Native performer. Thank you very much. But, you know, um, so I, I do think that's possible. I also think it's possible that given the levels of deceit that appear to have been engaged in, was there other kinds of behavior on her part, you know, um, that wasn't totally above board with other uh, performers and artists. So I, you know, often these stories unfold over time. Yeah. And it matters, right? I mean, I think sometimes people see it as sort of character assassination, right? I mean, that's kind of the, that's what I've seen as the knee jerk reaction to it. But, but this clearly matters and you've pointed it out. It matters and it matters for a reason. Yeah, I mean, I think this this rep, stealing our stories matters, right? Uh, producing, uh, having Indigenous people come to identify with you and your story when it's based on lies causes more hurt. Um, and, you know, I, I've, I often say we have plenty of people who do good in our communities without this level of fabrication. We have non-Indigenous allies who do good without claiming to be us. Uh, having done some good is no excuse for this level of deception for this long of so many people. And look at the kind of hurt it's producing. Yeah. I, and in this case, I suppose, I mean, again, she, she denies the claims, I guess we'll, um, yeah. and, and she's stayed with her story. Uh, it's going to be, um, it's, this is, this one feels, I mean, all the other ones were important. I felt like the, the you know, the Boyden one was important. The Mary uh, right. Ellen Lafon was important. This one feels, feels different. I agree. It does feel different. I didn't get emotional about any of the rest of those. Yeah. Well, Kim, I, I really appreciate your insight on this. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for taking this on. The history of the human body, as you may well know, is often a pretty one-sided affair. It focuses on the bodies of men. It's sort of called the male norm, right? That's what it is. Uh, My next guest was doing a PhD at Columbia, New York back in 2013, pondering these issues when she saw the prequel to Aliens called Prometheus, set very much in the future. But one scene was a reminder of that so-called male norm and that it was alive and well, even even in a fictional future. Have a listen. Emergency procedures initiated. Please verbally state the nature of your injury. I need a cesarean. Error. This med pod is calibrated for male patients only. Please seek medical assistance elsewhere. Our pod is calibrated for male patients only, it says. And this kind of sparked this whole idea that she'd had. That she, wait a second. Um, that was the jumping off point. You know, why is it that it, our vision of the, of the evolution of the body has been so skewed towards one half of the population? Um, so she would sit out on, on this project that would take a decade and become her book called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Evolution. Again, as the title would suggest, it begins 200 million years ago, traces the evolution of the female body through the ages, trying to establish some balance in that history. And it delves into some topics that may come as a bit of a surprise. For example, almost all medical research, including drug tests historically, has been conducted on men only, a way to ensure, of course, consistency and so on, um, to protect children. I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why it's done, but still, uh, it's been calibrated for men only. 
And that has impacts, right? When you're only testing something on one part of the population, that's been changed a little bit in the past little while, but there's the legacy of that that exists to this day. We don't often understand the impacts of some things such as opioids uh, and other things have on women versus men. And, and that that is an issue, right? So again, uh, Kat Bohannon's work tries to write or establish a bit more balance in this tale. Again, the book is called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. And Kat Bohannon joins me now. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a real, I mean, this this took you a long time. And, and you can tell too, because it is an incredibly thorough review of, uh, I mean, of, of more than half of us, right? I mean, it just feels like this story had, just hasn't been, as I was reading through it, that this story just hasn't been told enough over the years. And, and I wonder if that's what you spotted a decade ago and how that came to be that you thought, I need to spend the next many years putting this down and figuring this out. Oh, wow. So there were many different, you know, moments that sort of sprung uh, the book into my brain um, as, as maybe this should be a thing that I do. Um, but in terms of books that exist already about uh, human evolution and how that might tie into society today and new ways of understanding, there are loads of these. Uh, there's uh, Jared Diamond, Guns, Drugs, yes, and Steel. I've read that's that. That's a big yes. one. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, Yuval Noel Harari Sapiens. That's clearly been very popular. Uh, Richard Dawkins has said, many things right you know and 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 but in so many of the stories uh that are out there the female really gets short shrift the female is really this sort of like almost like a footnote like i guess we were having babies you know yeah. um and, but just not really much discussion at all about what went into that and um and why it might matter uh and and how that goes all the way into deep mammalian evolution of course uh, because our species is a mere 300,000 years old, right? Um, but mammals are 200 million years old. But I think uh, one of these moments that really drove it home for me was actually watching uh, Kubrick, it's 2001. Space right. Odyssey. The opening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's this classic scene. Actually, if you look in the screenplay, it's called The Dawn of Man, the scene. And there's a bunch of hominins, which are actually like British and American mimes in ape suits, but never mind. You know, and they're sort of scratching themselves. They're kind of beating things on the ground. They're living their little life. But at one moment, you know, a central character uh, finds a bone, like a big honking bone, and starts beating the ground with it and then quickly runs off to like beat some other guy up with it, right? And then, it, you know, Kubrick's camera traces it and you follow this bone up through the air and it transforms into a spaceship. And that's sort of the opening of the whole, you know, the that tool triumphalism. This is where we come from. And I remember looking at that scene many times when I've watched this film, because I have many times. I'm like, where the hell are the females and the babies? Yeah. You know, like I, I see maybe they were in there and I just couldn't tell. But like I've rewatched that many times and they're just not players in that in that moment which is supposed to be a big originating moment of where we come from and i'm like we are not telling this story well and certainly no. not biologically accurately and and, and you actually I, I know this from having seen read another interview that you did but there's another movie that comes in this into this as well which is also set far in the future prometheus i don't know how many people saw the prequel mm -hmm. to alien but another scene mm. whereby you're sort of reminded you know forget movie set in the at the dawn of time uh even in the future this still exists and and, and stories are still being told the same way i know this is all fiction but still it, it does drive home the point you know the funny thing about sci-fi and uh which is tangential to the book but it's it'll still work um is that you always know what era it was filmed in by what the women are wearing 
Right. You know what I mean? Star That's Trek. how you yes. know where you are in Star Trek yes. by yeah. whether or not it's a mini skirt on a <laughs> like yeah. you, right? Um, so it's it's very much true that um, how we understand ourselves is deeply tied to our local culture, which is often tied to how we understand gender and all of that mess. Um, but you know how we imagine what a female role might be presently deeply shapes how we tell the story of our past and how we imagine stories of our future. So was, yeah. yeah. There are some very concrete things in this book that are very interesting as well. Uh, one of the big ones being that you talk uh, about about scientific, basically scientific research. And I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of people, I mean, honestly, I, until I reread the book, I'd forgotten this. And I look back into Canada's history. You can go back to the 90s and then uh, maybe 10 years ago, this has been updated. Um, but the fact that scientific research for many, many years was only carried out on men for many reasons. Oh, yeah. But the idea, oh, yeah. the idea that that would be true uh, is, is, is pretty astounding. It is pretty shocking. There is such a thing as the male norm, um, which is true in basic biological research all the way up through biomedical research and all the way up through human clinical trials. Um, we are only studying male bodies. Mostly, this is not because of sexism, although it definitely sounds like it, I know. It's actually because we're trying to control for the messiness of the estrus cycle, those hormonal fluxes in the female. That is true in every single uh, female mammal and is certainly true in human women as well. And so what effectively was done is, well, one way to control for it is just not to include the female at all in your study. Like, well, then that's controlled for. Unfortunately, that means that by the time you get to human clinical trials, for example, any drug you might want to give somebody, right? Are you testing it on female bodies before you arrive in human subjects? And once you get to human subjects, are you properly testing for sex differences between males and females? And the answer almost universally is, well, no. The vast majority of medications on the market today have never been properly tested in female bodies. So we've been learning how to adjust dosing regimens and worry about side effects kind of ad hoc after the fact in retrospective data. We've been guinea pigs, man. I, I mean, I, I think more of us should have should have known known that. But so essentially, for, for years and years and years, medications that were being developed were were simply being developed for men. And the idea w- was what what was what when you would prescribe them to women? You do you become a sort of an ongoing experiment once they hit the market? It certainly wasn't thought of as an ongoing experiment. It was more thought of as, well, dosage has to do with uh, body weight, your mass. In other words, you're given a certain dose, basically, according to how big your body is, presumably. How does this distribute through the system? Depending on the type of drug, to be clear. Some of them, it sort of doesn't matter how much you weigh. Some of them, it really matters, right? Um, It depends what tissues that drug is interacting with, which is, these are complex questions, right? But effectively, the assumption was, it just didn't matter. And also clinicians, to be fair, often didn't themselves know that they hadn't been properly tested uh, back during the drug approval process and all the way back to basic science and things like rats. You know, this is more a discovery that's more recent. In the last 20 years, we've finally been properly paying attention to it. And new research is coming out all the time, which is actually kind of like the Wild West. You know, like everywhere we look for a sex difference now, it seems we're finding it in the lab. This is not just cutting edge, but kind of bleeding edge science. Um, But it really, really matters for things like opioid drugs. It really mattered, it turned out, for Zolpidem, which is Ambien, a common sleep aid. We now know that uh, women patients, female patients should have the dosage 
should do half the dosage that a man would do. Instead of the 10, you get the five. And they found that out because a lot of women were getting in car crashes in the mornings after having taken the pill the night before. And unfortunately, uh, in the typical female body, the slope of decline, how it's clearing the system, the side effects are clearing the system was different than the man. It took longer, basically, right? So that morning commute for someone who had just had a bit of insomnia and was just trying to get past it suddenly became more dangerous. But at that point, when we finally changed it, it'd been on the market for 21 years, man. 21 years until we caught up with that. That's a hot minute. Yeah. That's a long long time to be conducting sort of an experiment in half your population. (laughs) Without realizing that that's what you're doing. Without realizing that's what you're doing. Capo Hannon is with me. Her book is called Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. We were talking earlier about essentially about scientific research, drug testing specifically, and how for many, many, many years it was done on men only. There are many reasons for that about controlled environments and labs and so on. But it meant that, of course, w- women can react to certain medications. We we're talking about opioids uh, as well, differently than men. And that wasn't really known mm-hmm. until these things were on the market. You bring up sort of one of the things I found the scariest was anesthesia. I mean, I think we've all, a lot of us perhaps been put under, so to speak, over the years. And it was found that, um, and this was a really interesting example, actually, women tend to, can come out faster from from, from yeah. an anesthetic, regardless of, yeah. you know, even with the same body weight. And how they found that out was as interesting as what they found out in some ways. Yeah. So there had been some research into this before this key moment in 1999, uh, but it hadn't been properly done. And it was sort of seen as roughly uninteresting from the people I interviewed. So this big moment is in 1999, uh, there was a study being done on a new EEG machine. So, you know, measuring your your brain activity, essentially. And um, and they're trying to see, well, not just brain activity. Let me revise that. They, they were recording uh, various signals from your body, trying to see how the anesthesia is interacting with you. Are you coming out of sedation? Are you not? And of course, importantly, are we killing you? Are you not? Because that's what anesthesia is. It's hovering at the edge of death and then coming back. Congratulations. You've had a surgery, right? Right. Um, so the thing that they found out, because it was a bunch of different research hospitals. So for once, there are a bunch of male and female patients already set up for surgery who were enrolled in this trial, was that females uh, came out sooner, regardless of whether or not they were the same body weight uh, as uh, you know a same age male, right? In other words, it was specifically the sex that was driving it, not simply how big your body was and how much was going into you, right? There's something about how the female body was processing these anesthesia drugs. Um, that made them more likely to need a, an up of dosage a cor- over the course of time or maybe need a little more or, or simply need more close, uh, careful observation during the course of the surgery to make sure that she wasn't waking up. Right. The male norm, I mean, this is sort of where it goes through. And this, I'm just using a few of the examples because there are so many in the book that you can touch on. But the idea of of, of sort of the male norm itself and the impact that it's had on women over millennia, let alone decades, uh, is really Mm -hmm. kind of the basis of the book. And you see sort of the impacts of it. I thought that the whole system around research and drug testing was kind of a concrete example that anyone could understand these days as well. Uh, It's the moral imperative. Yeah, it is. It is. Mm -hmm. It it seems to have improved. But I mean, you've you've mentioned that evolution doesn't care about our sensibilities, never has. Right. And that's part of this, too. Absolutely. What what was what what would you like readers to take away from this? And then uh, obviously it's a conversation starter beyond all conversation starters in many ways. But what would you what would you like women or women? What would you like everyone to take away from it? Well, in this book, I'm really um, 
inviting us to think about our own bodies. Where do these bodies come from? How, do that, how does that fit into our deep evolutionary history? How can we find some new and more constructive and more true, frankly, more factual frames for understanding these deep intimate experiences we have in these bodies and how they interact and how best to take care of them as we move through our lives going forward? Because each of us is the best authority on what it's been like to live in our bodies, right? I'm not giving you anything new there. You already know better than anybody what it's like to have lived in your weird mammalian body, which, as I say in the book, is very weird, right? Mm -hmm. but, but you may not have all of the frames of reference that I'm able to provide to you. You may not have had that deep evolutionary story that had been largely left out um, in both the scientific and in the popular literature. Um, so I'm giving you new, new tools of understanding and new ways to have those conversations, new permissions to open the door. Yeah. Uh, and it's and one, it, it just feels again, as I started off saying, having gone through the book and then read interviews that you've done, uh, it just felt like it was a part of a story that just hadn't been told enough over a very long yeah. time. And in yeah. all honesty, as a, as a, you know, as a man, uh, mm -hmm. you, sometimes you don't notice what isn't there until it's pointed out to you. Right. And I think your book, oh, of course, really helps do that. And, and that in of itself makes it, uh, you know, amongst other things, a, a very valuable read. I'm I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's um, I've gotten very positive response from my male readers, uh, actually. Um, and, you know, of course, I didn't know how that was going to go. Um, but I think, uh, well, there's there's a surprising amount of uh, male bodies, some of the uh, more tender bits of male bodies, actually, uh, in the book. So yes. there's plenty still yes. to learn there, too, if you happen to have said bits. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the idea of a co-evolution, the idea of the sexes interacting collaboratively and competitively um, is always going to be there in the evolutionary story. So so there, there's room for everyone in there. Well, Kat, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. I hope you enjoy the book.